name is Susan Daniels. Um, I'm, I work at the NIH in Bethesda, Maryland. Um, I'm here to introduce our five speakers today who will be talking to you about different types of careers you can pursue um, related to science using your science um, background or degree. Um, Today, our first speaker will be Dr. Carolyn Anderson, who is Assistant Prof Professor of Chemistry at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And next to her, we have Dr. Matthew Stanford, who is Professor of Psychology, Neuroscience, and Biomedical Studies at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. Um, I guess next is Dr. Annabelle Pratt, who is a Power Research Engineer in the Systems Technology Lab within Intel's Corporate Technology Group in Hillsboro, Oregon, so kind of more local. Um, Dr. Ann Carpenter, who is Director of the Imaging Platform at the Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and myself, and I'll go last. I was thinking I would do it in kind of a continuum of kind of more traditional science-related careers to um, kind of the alternative type careers. So um, we'll start with Dr. Anderson, um, Dr. Stanford, um, and then Dr. Carpenter, Dr. Pratt, and then myself. So um, I've given you each a couple of pieces of paper. I'd like for you to write down any questions that come up on your piece of paper. Um, we're not going to stop in between talks. We're going to just go all the way through and then have a panel discussion, and you can ask your questions then. So that's some place to jot that down. And I'd also appreciate it if you have comments about the session, if on the other piece of paper you'd write down your comments and at the end just leave them with me so I can kind of try to figure out what we could do better in a future type of um, session. So with that, Dr. Anderson. Okay, so can you hear me? Yes? No? Right, okay. Um, I don't know that this is going to take me 15 minutes, but we'll see how it goes. Um, so I'm teaching at a relatively small liberal arts, generally, Christian college. We have 4,200 students. Uh, we also have an engineering program and a teaching program and a nursing program, so we kind of get lumped into the comprehensive university type of gig, but for the most part within sciences, we're basically a liberal arts institution. Um, I say that because I'm not actually sure that in science, at least coming out of sort of big research universities, that that is in fact a sort of normal trajectory. I, I in fact, am less confident that that is that that is true, especially within chemistry, especially where I came out of. But um, for me, uh, my path to this this type of work really started when I was a college student and. Um, was interacting with students. I had the opportunity to teach a laboratory section, to do some tutoring for our athletic department. I was an undergraduate at the University of Michigan. And um, I was crazier than anything, and yet the time I enjoyed best was the time I was teaching. Um, I think my mom had it figured out long before I did, but I really just enjoyed being with students. And I would, the one thing I would make time for in my, in my schedule was interacting with students. And, um, so for me to, to go on to a position that has a large teaching component and a teaching requirement was a very natural progression for me. Um, I did my graduate work in a prominent organic chemistry group, uh, probably one of the top 10 or 20 in the country. Um, so certainly this was not the norm coming out of the group. The norm for that group would have been to go on to a large research university or to go into big pharmaceutical, Merck, Pfizer, those types of companies. 
Um, I was certainly the sort of outside um, person uh, in that. Um, as I said, I chose to go in that direction really because I love to teach. And I love to teach undergrads specifically. I think undergraduates are at this amazing, wonderful age where they're both humble and arrogant and make them incredibly teachable. Um, they're humble enough not to feel dumb asking for help, and they're arrogant enough to demand that you'll teach them. Um, and that makes them infinitely teachable and a lot of fun to work with as far as I'm concerned. Um, they also haven't figured out exactly what they want to do yet, and so you still have a real impact on people's trajectory. Um, it's not at all uncommon for someone to show up in our environment who's good at science and assumes that because they're good at science they should be a doctor, um, only to sort of be... To, to realize in a research environment that really what they love to do is be in lab and they didn't know you could do that as a career and so it's really fun to be part of that that trajectory for them and that that decision-making process so I very much enjoy that um, so as a um, so how did I get to what I do um, I did a sort of very standard organic chemistry PhD um, and then instead of looking for a postdoc in another research group, I figured I already knew how to make molecules. What I didn't know necessarily how to do was to teach. And I wasn't sure, having been an, an undergrad at the University of Michigan and a graduate student at the University of California, Irvine, that I could convince someone in a small college setting that I actually knew what I was getting into. And that was a, a concern of mine. And so I actually chose to do something relatively unusual. I did a teaching postdoc. Um, at the time, that postdoc was sponsored by the Dreyfus Foundation, which is a foundation that funds um, a variety of chemistry-related types of, of programs, and they had a program for sponsoring teaching postdocs at small, um, primarily undergraduate institutions. Uh, I was able, we were able to actually get the last set of those that they funded. They've can since canceled that program, and I'm in the process of trying to get another foundation to start a similar program, but have not yet been successful there. Um, that type of postdoc allowed me to do half teaching and half research, that research being in an undergraduate type of lab, so I got sort of intimately um, connected to what the pacing of research would be like in that environment, how that would work, what my lab might look like, what I could expect, and I got to run my own classes, start to finish, lectures, labs, tests, all of that, um, which has also really eased my transition. So it, for me, it was a really great opportunity. Um, okay. So what does my job consist of? Well, I do a lot of teaching. Um, if you look at the load at Calvin, you might say that the teaching load at Calvin is reasonably high. If I don't have any internal release time, I teach, I guess you'd teach two lectures in two laboratories a semester. So that's a relatively high teaching load. Um, in the sciences, we get off a little easier than some of my colleagues in the humanities because we have multiple sections of a lot of courses. And so my heavy load in the fall consists of two lectures of organic chemistry four days a week, two labs that match with those same groups of kids, and an honor section. So while I teach a lot, I'm teaching all the same kids, all the same materials, so I'm not trying to think about a bunch of different things at the same time. That is not always the case. Um, there are environments where you'd be teaching a lecture of general chemistry and a lecture of organic chemistry and a lecture of something else, and that's a lot more challenging. But um, my teaching load being what it is is actually not too difficult to manage. The other major component of my job is actually working with undergraduates in the research lab. And that's a really... Um, in some ways, a really intense experience. In general, the undergrads that are coming in are very, very hard workers. I've had very good luck. They're very, um, 
very dedicated students, and I've had a great time with them, but they're not at the stage of things where they can do much problem solving on their own or know the field well enough to know what it, they know something doesn't work, but they don't know where to go with that. What do I do to make it work? What do I try next? And so what you find is I ran, I had four students this summer, and, um, you know, they come to you and say, well, this happened. What do I do next? And so you're doing the intellectual part for all of the projects that are running in your group, even though you're not doing the physical, necessarily the physical part of all of that work. Um, so it is a very mentally demanding kind of scenario, um, and having four students is quite a large group in at Calvin anyway. So that was um, a relatively uh, busy thing to do. Um, in addition, if you want to get out of lab permanently, I don't recommend taking this path because you're the one who gets in lab to train people how to do things the way you want them done. Um, students are incredibly good mimics, but they have to have someone good to mimic. And so the person who's got the most experience is the one who has to really get in and teach them what they're doing and, and show them that. So at least they develop your bad habits versus someone else's bad habits. Um, so that's, that's a plus. Um, in terms of pros and cons, I think the, if you don't like to teach, this isn't a good way to go. And if you want to publish 10 papers a year in your research field, this is also not a good way to go. Um, pacing in terms of scholarship is really different in a small college environment. Um, we always joke that if you can put out one paper a year in a small college environment, that qualifies you as a rock star. Um, that's a little different than the measure you might see in a research environment. Um, so the pacing is significantly different, the types of problems that you look at. Sometimes are and sometimes aren't, but you have to know that you're going to have to fit things into either a 10-week summer period that a summer student's going to work on or four or five hours a week during the academic year with week breaks in between. So it is a, a bit of a creative problem-solving method to try to figure out what projects make sense and what projects don't. Um, the pros are, as I said, you get to work with kids. You get to help them figure out what they're doing. You get to um, really figure out what their dreams are and help them get there. And um, I, as far as I'm concerned, there's just nothing like that. It's just an incredible thing to be able to interact with them that way. Um, and if you light up like I do when I talk about that, this is a great path for you. And it's a really easy, it's a really easy way to know that that's actually going to match with you well. Um, I think you have to be patient. I'm not always as patient as I should be, but you have to really want to engage with kids. You have to love that one-on-one -on -one interaction, that teaching interaction. There's a lot of little stuff that goes along the way, and in order for that stuff to be tolerable, you've got to love the rest of what you're doing. Um, and if you do, then it's, it's a great place to be. Um, let's see, what else? Balancing work with family or other life activities. Sometimes I do that well, sometimes I don't do that so well. We've talked about that a little bit. Um, I think the small college environment has certain advantages over sort of the big research institution mode or the graduate student postdoc type of, of schedule. I don't work a lot of evenings, at least not in my office. I don't work a lot of weekends. Sometimes I'll take work home with me, but I do largely have those times on my own. Um, but I am very constrained when my students are in lab. I, they get in at 8.30, that means I'm in at 8.00 they leave at 5 or 5.30, usually that means I leave 10 minutes after they do. Um, it depends on the type of science you do as to whether that's really necessary. My kids play with chemicals. Some of those chemicals are flammable. Some of them are, do a variety of different things. I'm not so comfortable walking out of the building without, you know, with them still sitting around working on stuff. That gets easier as you have students who are coming back, students you can, you know, trust with slightly more responsibility, things of that nature. But the 10 weeks that my students work during the summer, I am stuck in 
town. Um, when I go to a meeting in mid-June, I literally close my lab and tell them to take that week off. Um, so timing-wise, there's a little bit of, of difference in that, that relative to what a graduate student schedule might look like or the responsibility or freedom of, of leaving and moving in and out um, that you might get. Uh, but that's it. I do get my nights and my weekends mostly to myself So, because they're not working then, and so I don't need to be there, and I'm not. Um, my colleagues go home at, some of my colleagues go home at 4.30 in the afternoon, and that's totally fine. Um, so there is a difference in, in pacing and sort of understanding what the expectations are. Um, and how do I integrate faith with my career? Being at a Christian college, it's sort of all around. I've had some conversations with different people that it just sort of flows naturally in and out of all conversations, and you're always thinking about how does that work or how does this fit with my faith or how do I lead students into things. At Calvin, um, specifically before the first class of the day, but I tend to do it before every one of my classes, we'll do devotions in class. That's probably different than what a lot of you have seen in different environments. Um, things like that uh, are things you get used to or you get better at and you really find value in. Um, Chemistry is really hard, I think, to integrate at a sort of content level with your faith. I, I joked with someone earlier that a carbonyl is always a carbonyl and it's a secular carbonyl or a Christian carbonyl, but it's really hard to tell the difference. And, um, and that's, that's still the case for the content. It doesn't really change. So um, that is a real struggle sometimes in terms of figuring out where does... How, how is that impacted? And there are fields where that's an easier interaction, perhaps, um, than others in that conversation. But we always are wrestling in the Christian College um, venue with how does that integrate. It is a really nice plus that when you have a student in your office who's struggling with things, you don't have to think twice about whether you can invoke your faith in terms of talking to them about that issue. You just always can. Um, and there are, there are advantages to that. You don't have to sort of tiptoe around stuff. So. I don't know if I need to use that. I'm pretty loud, actually. So um, I, uh, I took a fairly traditional trajectory to where to get to where I am now. Baylor, it, while it's a Christian university over the last decade, has moved from its tradition of, of being a predominantly undergraduate university to being a research university. So they, over the last, a little bit over the last, more than about, about 12 years now, they've hired in predominantly research scientists at reduced teaching loads, uh, which has changed the culture of the university. Class sizes have gone up, and uh, people are evaluated on the number of publications and grants you have, things like that, as opposed to in the past, it was teaching evaluations and uh, more of a mentoring relationships with the undergraduates. Um, I uh, went to graduate school with, and with one singular focus on my mind, and that was what do I have to do to get my own lab and my own students so I can do whatever I want to do. So that was, that was my absolute driving force the entire time. Um, so I got through graduate school. I went and did a postdoc at a medical school with a prominent scientist in the, in the area um, because I believed that, that would, would propel me further. Um, that was a great experience. It's a very productive lab. Um, he had gave me a lot of autonomy, and uh, we got a lot of work done. Uh, I also learned there the you know the, the necessity of having grant funding. Um, nothing is going to happen without grant funding. So um, you know we wrote NIH grants and contacted foundations, and that was a tremendous learning experience. Uh, then from there, I in my first 
faculty appointment. Uh, you know, my, again, my thought on the faculty appointment was I don't care where I go as long as they have a doctoral program and they'll give me the lab that I need. So um, that ended me up in New Orleans, uh, which actually was pretty good. But I was there for 10 years, and um, and basically, you know, I, I, I realized early on that, um, you know, I'm, I have to get grants, and I have to write papers um, and publish, and I don't have time to go down and run the subjects myself. Um, I guess in my mind, I always thought I'd always be in the lab, but um, so uh, I surrounded myself with uh, graduate students and postdocs and undergraduates, and so uh, presently in my lab right now I have three behavioral neuroscience doctoral students, I have two clinical doctoral students, three undergraduates, and a postdoc. Uh, postdoc is uh, she's she got her postdoc, got her PhD at Virginia Tech, I did a year postdoc in New Mexico, and she's in her second year with me of a three-year uh, postdoc. So. Um, I don't spend a lot of time in the lab. I do try to see every person that we, I study impulsive and, violent and aggressive behavior. I do try to see every person that we see, just at least for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, I sit down and talk with them. Uh, in, in the past, when it was just me and my one graduate student when I first started, I would do a lot more work. But, uh, but I'm, you know, typically what I'm doing on day in, day out is I'm making contacts for uh, more referrals for most of these are patient populations, uh, working on some grant funding, or writing a paper. Uh, that's pretty much what I'm doing day in. And I enjoy that. I mean, that's, that's enjoyable. I, I get called to the lab when, like, they can't get the computer to come on and stuff like that. So, <laughs> so when, I, when they come down, they knock on the door in the middle of the day. I know it's a bad, it's a bad sign. Um, and so uh, in that first, uh, that first appoint, uh, faculty appointment I had, um, you know, I just basically tried to shun all things except publishing and getting grant funding because that's what the tenured faculty had told me was needed. And um, so I tried to avoid as many committee uh, involvement as I could. I tried to beg down my teaching load to whatever minimal thing I could get away with. Um, and, uh, you know, and I was able to get an additional uh, internal grant from the university, which let, allowed me to get pilot data, which allowed me to get uh, my first grant. And so, and, and that was, that was two and a half years in, and I've had continual grant funding since that, so that's since 1997. So uh, money changes everything. So you can buy yourself out of time to teach, you can pay your graduate students, you can, you can attract better graduate students because you can pay them more than the other graduate students. So uh, that was you know, a tremendous eye-opener to me. I mean, I always had worked off of grants, but I never really realized just how big of a difference it makes. Uh, so that was very important. And then, um, you know, I just, uh, early on, you had this question on here about how did you, um, or how did you balance work with your family and life activities. I think I do that really well right now because, because I'm much further along in my career. I, I honestly think that I've, I'm on the just back side of the peak of my, I think, I'm old. So, uh, and, but early on, um, uh, there was probably not a month that I was not at at least a meeting or two every month for about two years. I was somewhere giving a talk, uh, and uh, it was you know it was rough. I was gone a lot, so uh, but I intentionally did that so I could network and I could make contacts and I could develop a, a reputation in the area, um, and it, it, it paid off. But it wore me out, and it was hard. It's hard, you know, when you have a family. I only had a young daughter at that time, but uh, I have four children now. But uh, and now I don't, you know, I have kind of a machine that produces 
you know, uh, the research. Uh, you know, I have a PhD postdoc in my lab, and she can oversee things. I don't have to be there. So, so that helps out quite a bit. Um, I, there, I don't think there are any cons in my job. I have a great job. I mean, it's just, you know, I mean, how, I always tell people, how can you have a bad job when people pay you to think about things? It's just, it's just a great job. So um, I think skills and abilities, one of the things is I thought just being a good scientist meant you, you really knew statistics really well and you could design experiments and stuff. You're real careful in the lab. It, I really was surprised how much uh, personal contact I, I needed to make because I deal with these patient populations. I have to go to clinics and to practitioners and to different uh, institutions and make contact with individuals there and convince them that, that they want to help let me or help me recruit individuals to come into the lab. And so uh, making contacts, I probably spent uh, the first year I was in New Orleans, I probably spent, you know, I can't tell you how many lunches I took people out to uh, just so I could say, well, would you, would you think about letting us come over and recruit out of this domestic violence program or, or go into this uh, clinic? So uh, that was invaluable, but it, it really required me to go out and talk with a lot of people and meet a lot of people uh, and really just kind of make these cold calls like I'm a salesman almost. Uh, and, and that's really not really my nature. And so, but I really learned how to do that. Uh, and that, and that was, I thought that was important. So uh, it, it took a lot more personality traits than I would have anticipated. So um, it, uh, as far as integrating my faith, I uh, really for the longest time really thought that, that my academic life had nothing to do with my faith. So uh, I only practiced my faith on Sundays. Uh, and then over time, I think God really worked on me with that. And I, I one of the first things that really kind of woke me up was a faith-based domestic violence program wanted me to try to do some outcome measures for them so they could get some faith-based money because um, you had to have outcome measures to be able to get the money. And so, um, uh, I, you know, I, and I started actually gathering data out of their program, and I realized that these programs are everywhere, and I'd never even tapped into them. Lots of churches have uh, substance use houses. Lots of churches run domestic violence interventions. This is actually a court-ordered one. So I started actually using the services that the lab could provide, free psychological assessment, things like that, um, to provide services for these different organizations to, to help them because they no, they're so underfunded, they really have no services. And um, over time, that ultimately led me to where I am now, where I have an entire line of research that's just dedicated to uh, to integration of, of looking at mentally ill individuals, mentally ill believers, and their interaction with the local church, and trying to educate the local church on issues of faith in psychology and neuroscience. But I still actually recruit out of a lot of faith-based programs. Uh, I, it's easy because that's psychology, and so we can offer free assessments and things like that, so it's things that they can use. We, we do for the mission, we do free assessments to get people off the streets so they can get disability and, and things like that. So that, that's been really, really kind of, I'm at, a, I'm at a point where we can do that a lot, uh, and, and I, would, I don't think I would have ever really imagined that early on. So uh, God's really used that uh, in my life to show how useful uh, the skills that we have that can be to people that are in need. So that's kind of where we are. Uh, it's, uh, it's been a pretty traditional track. Um, as far as, I, you know, I go home when I want to go home. And that's, you know, I, I only teach one class. So you got to remember that. So I don't have a lot of teaching responsibilities. So if I want to go home early, that just means I won't be working on a, a paper or something. And I, I just have tended to, I have a, just a set rule. I do not take work home, period. Um, I don't work on anything on the weekends. Uh, I, just, I just don't do it. It's just too distracting 
for uh, – in fact, I'm really bad about checking my email all the time, and I need to stop doing that. But it's uh, – it's, the other thing – one thing I would say is, you know, as a young assistant professor, you need to be careful that you don't get drawn off into what appear like really interesting things and helpful things to do, like being on committees or being on this kind of – because they're going to all come and offer that to you. Um, and um, it's just not a good idea early on. They – it – you know, you just have to be you – know, like, do they want you to be – yeah, I, I know a woman at, uh, that uh, she was convinced to be, as an associate professor, I mean assistant professor untenured, she was convinced to be in charge of the doctoral program. And, and it's a tremendous amount of work. I'm in charge of the doctoral program in our program right now, uh, and she didn't get tenure. So, I mean, I, I think that you have to, you have to look out for yourself uh, and, and really kind of have a singular focus until you get tenure, and then you can look at some of those other types of things that <coughs> that might be beneficial to you as far as networking within the university itself. Uh, I think a really good um, faculty mentor for a new assistant professor is really a must. So if your university doesn't assign you one, find one. You know, somebody that will be honest with you and you can just bounce things off of them and say, well, I'm thinking about doing this or yeah, I'm going to go out to this grant. Because, you know, you have grants have varying probabilities. You can certainly speak to that. And so, you know, if you're going to spend three months writing a grant that you, it's very unlikely you're ever going to get, but you could get a real quick something over here to get some pilot data, I mean, you, you need to have somebody you can kind of bounce that stuff off of. Um, I, uh, I guess the last thing I'd say is that I began in the medical school model. I was at a medical school. I had every intention to stay in a medical school. Um, but because I – and I was married, but I had no children. Uh, but I realized very quickly that – if I stayed in that, I would. It was just too much stress. It was just not. I, I just didn't enjoy it. Some of my students have enjoyed it, and they've gone on, and they're professors at medical schools. But uh, I, I, I enjoy the university environment. Um, I, you know, I, I like teaching graduate students. I teach neuroanatomy to graduate students, and uh, but the the constant stress of making sure that you have a grant to support yourself was just something that I just. Even though I've had continual funding, it just, I just, it's easier for me to have continual funding when I don't have somebody looking over my shoulder going, well, you're running out next month. You make sure you get it. So that, that's just something you have to decide early on. I think the university environment gives you a lot of opportunities for time off with your family, Christmas breaks, things like that. Um, so I'm Ann Carpenter. I, um, I'm the director of the imaging platform at the Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT, but it's a weird position that kind of doesn't exist anywhere else, so I won't spend too much time about the peculiarities of what I'm doing. Um, it's uh, The best way to explain it is, is it's very much like being on the faculty, except there's no teaching and it's not tenure track. So I'm leading a research group that, for all intents and purposes, looks like um, like I'm in a department at MIT or Harvard, but, um, but I don't have to deal with the whole tenure issues and, and and, um, or with teaching, which is a little unfortunate because I love teaching. Um, so it's a it's a pretty top-notch research institution, and I'm a year and a half into my new position. Just finished a postdoc at the Whitehead Institute last year. Um, so I'm I'm envisioning the world that that. Um, Matthew just described 10 years from now when things are a little less stressful because right now I'm you're catching me kind of at the at the year and a half mark which is they say the first year is the worst and the second year is pretty bad too but eventually it's supposed to get less stressful so um, 
I, um, the path I took, I was sort of raised as a biologist through undergrad and graduate school, but then during my postdoc became interested in computer science and um, switched over such that now my group is, um, I, ha I have a research group of about 10 mostly computer scientists that are working with me. Um, so I can, kind of, I can answer questions um, in both domains because I have a lot of students who are uh, across the two. Um, actually, I, I only, I have one postdoc in my group. Everyone else is a, um, a research scientist. Again, it's a weird institute, so most of the people in my group are just permanent scientists. Um, but uh, I'm familiar with the with the normal biology track and the normal computer science track. If you're going academically, um, I it's interesting because that my whole career I fully intended to go to industry. So when I went to undergraduate, um, I tried to make the decision: Do I want to go to med school or do I want to go into research? And decided I wanted to do research. Um, so as soon as I finish my undergrad degree, I'm going to go and work for a company. I really want to make a difference in the world, so I want to make um, some kind of commercial product that's going to make it into the world. Um, and then at the end, I realized, well, at this point, I feel like all I can get is a sales job in, in biotech, so I'll, I better go to graduate school. So I went to, to do my PhD, but you know, at the very end of the, at the end of this, I'm, I'm totally going into pharmaceutical or biotech industry so I can make a difference in the world. And um, got to the end of that and realized, um, you know, I kind of really need to do a postdoc if I want to lead, a, if I really want to lead a research group um, in industry, I'm going to have to do a postdoc. So, um, so I went to do my postdoc, and by the time I, I got to the end of that, I realized um, I actually kind of like it here. So, <laughs> so in academia, so um, ended up um, interviewing for positions. Um, most most of the, the positions I interviewed for were traditional academic professor um, positions, and. Um, had a lot of offers, but um, but the um, Broad was definitely the, um, the the best fit for me in a, in a number of different ways. Um, so what I like about my job is that um, well the stress the the downside of my job is just um, uh, as a PI um, just the deadlines the grants um, the sort of stress of um, caring for a large group of people. So it hit me um, it hit me this past year when I was talking to my new post to my new postdoc emailing back and forth, and I realized that this man is uprooting his entire family from Sweden. His wife and three children are moving to Boston to work with me, and that just struck me as so frightening <laughs> that somebody's livelihood depended on my ability to get grants and my ability to, to provide, more importantly, my ability to provide good research ideas and a good research environment such that he's able to establish his own independent research career. And that just, that, the weight of that responsibility I found to be surprisingly intense that, that, um, that, of course, a lot of it has to do with his ability to find his own niche in the research world, but that, um, but that his family's livelihood depended on, on my abilities um, was pretty intense. And, and just in general, the, the rest of my group it depends on me getting grants. Um, on the upside, I love, so I might be quite unusual among faculty, I love writing grants, I love writing papers, I love giving talks, and I think I agree that um, a PI at a mainly research institute um, our chief job is actually communications. It's it's not actually <laughs> necessarily research. It's um, so of course in theory we're coming up with the great research ideas and and people in our group are working on them and that's part of it. But actually I think in terms of the amount of time that you spend doing things, most of it is communications and um, that's a little bit of a shock. But luckily it's something I really like doing since my early career ideas were to be a literature major or you know teaching or something like that. So it, it works out well for me. Um, 
the, the upsides of my particular position is that um, as a PI with p many people in your group, you just you get to oversee many successful projects. And unlike when you're a PhD student and things are going badly all the time and 90% of things aren't working, um, as a PI, yeah, you, you're aware that the frustration is going on, but and you certainly absorb a lot of that, and, and your goal is to motivate and encourage your, the people in your group. But you also get all the, the rewarding, satisfying aspects of many projects um, being accomplished. So to have 10 different projects all coming to fruition and, and congratulating people on their good results is just is really satisfying. It's really motivating. Um, the fact that you're in academia and you have sort of this noble career of working towards improving human health, um, and in my case, producing open source software, it just has a lot of these intangible, you know, we're doing good things for, for humanity. And, um, and that, it's, I think, is, is really hard to replace. Um, I... Um, blah, blah, blah. Let's see. Um, I think for being a PI, I think the personality traits that are really important is, is to have a lot of enthusiasm in the face of frustration. Um, I, I, that's key, and anybody learns that when they're in their PhD program. Um, that is important to keep your own self motivated, but as a PI, it's even more important to keep the people in your group um, enthusiastic about their projects and that sort of thing. Um, the, we were supposed to answer how we balance work and family with other life activities. I'm single right now, um, and but I, ha I actually, among my peers, I have an extremely strict division between work and, and family life or other life. Um, so I, I, like some of the other speakers have said, um, I'm very unusual because I, pro I probably work 55 hours a week or something, um, and I'm pretty strict about not working on the weekends at all, and typically not working on in the evenings. It just so happens that you know, as life events go, sometimes it doesn't. I may as well work an evening or two a week every once in a while. But um, and certainly when grants come due, then then I'm up all night. But um, but I would say overall, um, that's something that I think is really important to establish earlier in, early in your career is to just decide you're not going to become a workaholic. And the only way to do that, I think, is to limit that you're not checking email you know, at home or you're not, you know, you're not working on the weekends except for really special occasions and that sort of thing. I think that's because um, otherwise it, it just you absorb the culture around you and people are just working nonstop all the time, always thinking about their science. And it can be it can be very I think it's very un, it can be unproductive. And I think actually in my case, partly it's um, Partly it's because I don't want that lifestyle. Partly it's because I think as a Christian it's important for me to maintain other interests and other service, um, time for service and time for developing relationships. But I think practically speaking it, it's almost selfishly motivated that I think it's just really unproductive to think about work all the time. Um, so I think I'm, I'm a better scientist because I, I'm trying to be very strict about limiting it spilling over into other parts of my life. Um, I think that's about all I wanted to say. Sorry. Up. So, I work at Intel, so I have a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> so, and I, I feel like I, um, I have a very different <laughs> perspective to offer. Um, I don't, you can read that fine, right? Okay. So, I'll start with my history. Um, so I'm a, a power research engineer. I work in Intel's um, uh, corporate technology group, which is, um, I think, in the research and development realm. I'm more on the development side, not the peer research. Intel actually has more of a research group up in Seattle. 
Um, so in high school, I um, grew up in South Africa, went to high school there, and I enjoyed everything. I had French and geography and math and science. Um, so engineering was a very pragmatic choice for me. I'm kind of jealous of you know, people who say they just know what lit them up. Because for me it was, well, I have better career opportunities if I do follow the science route and if I do engineering in four years I'll be a professional I don't have to do a PhD and then I end up doing a PhD um, I also wanted to bring in a little bit of my faith in science um, history so in high school pretty much you separated it there were simply questions you didn't ask how faith and science interrelated um, I finished my undergraduate studies in South Africa at the University of Stellenbosch um, I also did my master's degree there, and then I came to Oregon State University to do my PhD. I had no academic teaching aspirations, but it was an opportunity to study overseas, see a new place in the world, and I came. Um, I'd never had any interest in academia. I, if I was going to work, it was going to be an in industry. <laughs> um, and so I only had research assistantships through graduate school. Going in, I talked to my professor, and he knew I didn't want to teach, so I, I never took a teaching assistantship. Um, I joined a group called the Graduate Christian Forum at Oregon State, which was a tremendously valuable experience for me. It was the first group of um, people, students, scientists, um, talking about their faith and, and science. And you could ask any question, and it was through that that I was introduced to um, ASA. My first job was at a small company, Advanced Energy, in Fort Collins, Colorado. Um, I, so I defended my PhD thesis in December of 98. Uh, we moved and got married in January of 99. And um, I moved with my husband. He was move with HP and this is probably a whole other story but I didn't think that I wanted to go and work after I got married um, that didn't last very long by June I was looking for a job <laughs> so I had to get to know myself a little bit I um, I couldn't stay home um, and in this specific case I made a cold call to an engineering manager at this company. I had already dropped off my resume in person. I knew I wanted to work at this company. I sent my resume to a few other companies, but um, I worked with a professional person um, who did job placement, and she really encouraged me to, through other contacts, I got two phone numbers at this company, and you know, I called on a Wednesday, I think, and 10 days later I was working there. And it was a very tough transition for me from grad, from grad school to work. <laughs> the biggest things were there is no closure. You design the product, you build it, you ship it. If it breaks, you get called. It never, never ends. If there's a problem on the manufacturing line, um, if they can't figure it out, it comes back to you. And also because I was in industry and I had a PhD, I had to deal with skepticism because I'm too academic and can I really do the job? <laughs> so um, I put a lot of pressure, I think sometimes on myself, M maybe it wasn't so much external to just prove that I can do it. Um, it was a small company, about 1,500 people, so you get immediate ownership. There's no mentor helping you through. You sink or you swim. It is, here's your problem, 
go off and solve it. You also get direct impact on products. If I wanted to design a circuit a certain way, I had a design review with a few engineers, but I built it, I tested it, I got the results, and I ultimately decided to ship it, un unless there was really a reason for the other engineers to say that's not a good idea. I also dealt directly with customers. I went to the sites. Um, I, I'm in power electronics, so I designed power supplies, um, and they went into semiconductor tools. I went into the fab and watched them run, and I was on a first-name basis with several customers. If they had a problem or a question or they wanted a new version, they called me. And I also had contact with people in a wide range of jobs. I worked with planners and test engineers and reliability engineers and um, technical manual writers. Um, I loved it. And um, those years in Colorado, I attended local and then also started attending annual ASA meetings. And the um, Rocky Mountain um, chapter of the ASA is very active. So I got involved with them and served on the board. Um, now, look at all of this, and it, I mean, it, it looks pretty positive. I was very stressed. There was a lot of politics at work. And um, I started work in 99, and you probably know the stock market started going down in 2000. Our products were sold into the semiconductor industry. So you know, a year and a half into working, all of a sudden, you have layoff after layoff after layoff. Um, the first one was absolutely terrible. Um, going to people that you knew were just laid off. And in this company, it was immediate. I mean, they came to you and you left that day. So going over to someone that you've worked with and said, you know, I'm sorry to hear you were let go and wishing them the best, um, worrying about your own job, to very quickly realize that there's absolutely no loyalty. And what happens to is as you lose people, um, the work doesn't go away. So your workload goes up. And I just made the decision, I'm not going to bleed to death for this company. So I guess a little bit different, but you just have to have boundaries of <laughs> I'm not going to have kill myself um, because of the layoffs. Um, and then my current position with Intel, um, we were a two-body problem. <laughs> uh, my husband uh, used to work for HP. He went back to school while we were in Colorado. He was on the manufacturing side, kind of saw the writing on the wall that jobs are disappearing, and um, in 03, his whole group was shipped to Malaysia. Well, not the people, the job. And so he um, fortunately had already um, begun his graduate studies. He finished in May of 04. Um, Colorado high-tech industry was in a slump. And so we were in a pretty tough situation. This was a very difficult decision to make. You have two people. Um, two jobs. I'm in a good job. I'm in the specialization area that I went to for all these years for school. Um, and so my decision was very individual. In this specific instance, it was my husband's first job in the new area that he just trained for. I had five years of experience. I should be able to find a job. <laughs> and then I was just completely at peace. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a very, very um, hard place to be. And you know, by God's grace, I had a job offer before we left Colorado. Um, I mean, it could have been entirely different. I could have sat in Portland for a year and gone through all the frustrations of job searches, but um, I felt very, very blessed. And in this instance, I just wanted to mention this because there's kind of the standard way of getting jobs. <laughs> and in this instance, I had met a graduate student in South Africa 
um, back in the early 90s and he also came to the States and we kind of kept in touch all those years so it's very good to maintain these ties over all those years and I called him and I said Henry I know you do power electronics at Intel I don't know what you do but I know we're in the same field he gave my resume to a hiring manager had an interview you know got the job um, so it yeah these things don't happen the way I thought they would so now I work in an extremely large company, over 110,000 people. There are 17,000 of us just in Oregon. There's 5,000 at my plant. And the first thing that struck me was you walk into the building and you don't greet people. It's like at an airport. <laughs> at Advanced Energy, you at least knew the faces. And here, I mean, you can't. You'll never get to your desk if you uh, greet everyone. I'm in a research group. My frustrations are I have no direct product impact. I cannot make the decision of what gets shipped. I have no customer contact because I'm too far removed. Um, with Intel in general, it's bureaucracy. Um, sometimes I feel like I talk about what I do more than I actually do what I do. Um, but we have money, so we have opportunities to fund programs at universities. I never wanted to teach, but I have love the opportunities I've had to be an industry mentor for a student on a project I fund. Um, and I get to work on technologies. We can take informed risks on technologies that may never come to fruition. So in a smaller company, you had to make money. <laughs> you couldn't go too far into the future. And I have the opportunity to work on technologies and they may or may not happen, and it's much better for my career if they do happen, but it's, it is um, a built-in function of what I do that it may not. Um, and of course, we have all these fantastic educational programs. We have kind of a built-in university, you have formal mentoring programs. It is a very different world. So to me, I, I think eventually I'll probably still want to go back to about a 2,000 to 5,000 person company, but it's been a very good experience in both of them. Um, and after I moved from Colorado, um, there wasn't really anything happening with ASA in this area, so um, I kind of got a little energy going, and we had a meeting in 07, and hopefully we'll have another one in 09. Um, I, I wrote down my key questions and challenges at the moment. This is what I struggle with. Um, the first one is, I'm a power engineer. I'm working for a company that makes microprocessors. <laughs> um, I'd love to work on renewable energy. I was in a session this afternoon, and they're talking about you know, oil production and geothermal energy and wind. And I've got to figure out how Intel can build um, wind <laughs> plants. Um, I'm also working for a company that builds in very high volume, and everything drives prices down. This doesn't sit well with me because you know somewhere along the line someone is paying a cost. I don't know to what extent you can be responsible for how the precious metals are mined, what conditions people are working in, but these are difficult things for me of working in industry where money has to be made and there's stock um, prices that have to go up. Um, on the flip side of it, I, this isn't um, quotes because one of my former colleagues actually told me recently in one of our discussions, he said, sometimes you just get to a point where you have to say, how good does the job have to be? <laughs> you know? I'm two miles from work. I have incredible flexibility. I have interesting projects. I get paid well. Um, we have an infant daughter at home. 
I get to spend time with her. Um, but these are these are very difficult questions for me. Um, that how how you balance these things. So if I go and work in something where I think I'm bettering mankind, but I'm spending more time commuting, how do I trade that with my family? So, um, and then the questions from Susan that I didn't answer, essential qualities. And I realized as I was listening to others, I guess the first thing there is your technical expertise. And you have to be able to do your job well. But others than that, it's teamwork, um, the prioritization. Um, the problem I have is people come to me with the most interesting problems. And I would love to be involved in this project. And um, a tool I use is I write down the three things I want to get done in a year. And I look at that every day. It's on my whiteboard to say, if it doesn't fit these three things, I can't do it. So similar kind of prioritization focus. Um, you have to be able to negotiate, um, because people will want to do such and such. And you're working with five different groups. So have to be able to negotiate, get what you um, want out of it. And um, flexibility, <laughs> because things change. And I love this quote from someone at Intel. It's on their email. And he says, procrastination is the secret to my flexibility. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and then uh, working to a deadline. I mean, it's an industry product has to ship. Even, it, even while I'm in a research group, the timelines at Intel are absolutely amazing. Um, I have to have things ready. If I want to intercept the technology in 2012, I have to have it ready now. I have to start going through my review processes. So. Um, and, but I love that. I, I really work well to deadlines. And then communicating results, especially in this large company. If you cannot stand up and communicate your results, well, forget it. Um, balancing work and family. Um, the first thing is to realize that you will need to make trade-offs. There are people who work 80 hours a week. Um, and yes, at some point it becomes unproductive. <laughs> but still, I can't compete with someone who is seen working the whole time, people who pour their life into the company. So um, I, I accept that I am going to progress more slowly and that there are some positions that I just never should be in because it's going to take um, too much of me. Um, and flexibility um, is priceless. It's like those MasterCard ads. <laughs> um, the other thing is, it, to me, it's dual everything. Uh, my husband and I just have the one baby daughter, but we have two careers. We both have to parent, and we both have to keep the house clean. I don't know how you can do it if you don't have that kind of a setup if, if both are um, employed. Um, the other thing I've noticed is um, dual career couples are in the majority. I just pulled some data up that 65% of people in 2004 were in dual career relations. So um, I see my male colleagues also starting to make use of the flexibility of saying, just standing up in a meeting and saying, I'm sorry, I have to go. I have to pick my kid up from daycare. So I think it's, in that sense, there's much more acceptance of people having to do what they have to do. Um, the other question on integrating my faith. First thing for me is C.S. Lewis you know, said, sometimes we focus so much on doing good works. We don't do good work. So that's my number one, um, have to do good work and be honest in my results. Um, I'm involved in a Bible study at work, which is incredibly important to me. It is wonderful for me to be able to go to a place and study the Bible. And there are some amazing 
the people who spend a lot of time studying the Bible that I learn a lot from, but you're in the same environment. You can encourage each other to not be too cynical, um, which <laughs> is very easy. Um, Intel and, and also advanced energy, but Intel specifically, um, they are so sensitive to religion and proselytization and diversity and inclusion um, that, I mean, the main thing I can do is I just through say, you know, if people say, what did you do the weekend? You can share you went to church. So you just kind of establish I'm a Christian, <laughs> but um, I, I feel you, you need to establish trust before you you share too much because of this environment and to be very very careful with not stepping over the lines that the company has set it's um, keep conversations for when you're on the road um, you know, I'm surrounded by so many other religions um, you Buddhists uh, because we we draw people from all over the world is specifically my group the only American in my group is my is my manager and he's actually from Portland but um, we're from Sweden, India, um, Jordan, China, uh, the Netherlands. It's an incredible collection of people. So it's a wonderful opportunity for um, you know, sharing the gospel. I'm not very good at it. And um, for me, sometimes it just the, the starting challenge is to stand up for your faith. And just as a small illustration, I was at a lunch. I've been on leave for, for a few weeks now. So just before I went on leave, my group had a lunch for me. So we're just sitting around the luncheon table. And the one gentleman was just sharing that his dad has just converted to Buddhism um, because he kind of, you know, found it uh, fit well with, uh, with his own personal beliefs. And he made a comment that, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a really scary religion. And one of the other people at the table said, um, yeah, there are some really scary religions out there. And I'm sure evangelical Christianity <laughs> fits right in there. And I mean, at that moment, it's like, well, what do I say right here? Um, and and then you think, well, I know I'm just going to open a can of worms. This is a lunch in my honor to send me off on my leave. Do I really disturb the whole piece right here? So I didn't, but it haunts me afterwards that it was an opportunity. It's not an Intel premises um, to, you know, that I could have just said, well, you know, what religions would you say are really scary or something like that? So that is, um, you know, and then I'm confronted by Romans. You know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. So um, that's kind of the environment that for me to just be able to take people on is the first step for me. So anyhow, there we go. Thank you. <laughs> Can you hear my voice without a mic? Okay. Okay. So, I'm going to start with um, college. For me, I went to Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois, a Christian college, and I majored in biology and French as a double major. And I couldn't decide at the time whether I wanted to go into French literature or if I wanted to go into biology. So I took a year and went to France and studied French literature and then decided to go into biology. So, so um, 
I went to graduate school at Brandeis University in Boston, Massachusetts, and I studied C. elegans neurogenetics. Um, some of you that might have been at Ann Carpenter's talk got a few pictures of C. elegans to look at. Um, I, I definitely found genetics fascinating, but as I went through my graduate program, once I was in about my third year, I started getting restless, and I think by then I had already realized I didn't really envision myself being a PI of a lab. Um, just something about watching the people around me that were running labs, I just, it didn't seem to fit my personality, and I, I wasn't able to completely put my finger on what it was, but I was already seeing that, you know, long term I might need to look at other types of career options. And some of the things that I, that probably came to mind is that I really enjoy writing, and I didn't, I didn't do all that much writing in the early part of graduate school when you're at the bench most of the time. You don't have a whole lot to write about except when you're giving talks or doing a journal club and putting together a slide presentation, which I really did like to do. Um, and I found that I really enjoyed thinking about the models and the theories and, and reading the literature, but I didn't actually have that much patience at the bench to repeat the same exper experiment over and over when I wasn't getting the result. <laughs> and I don't know, I, I didn't enjoy the bench work as much as I expected I was going to. Um, before I started graduate school, I had spent a summer at Stanford University's um, Hopkins Marine Station doing cell biology. And that atmosphere was a lot different. I think it was very mentoring and very much more discovery-based. But when I got to the reality of a, a regular research university lab, it sort of was like I got there. I thought I was going to be creating my own experiments. But really what happened is I had a choice of a number of labs, and most of them already kind of had tracks that you needed to get on, and so I just had to pick one of the ready-made tracks, and I, I don't know, it, it didn't quite excite me as much as it would have to come up with my own idea, so, and that might have just been the atmosphere at that particular university, so anyway, um, as I said, halfway through I was realizing that I, I had these feelings um, of wanting to explore further. I had really enjoyed being a teaching assistant. I loved teaching. Um, and found one of the other things that told me I might not be cut out to be a PI was that my PI was very critical of me for spending so much time on my teaching and caring that I was doing a good job at it. And they, they thought, well, it's just a requirement. You don't need to actually spend any time on it. You need to be here at the bench. And for me, that was something I enjoyed because I, I found I really liked communicating about science ideas and explaining it to audiences that maybe didn't know as much as I did about the about the science or maybe had a different training or background. So, um, and I also kind of am a big picture person. I like to think about broad ideas. I love reading the beginning part of science and reading about all the other fields and what's going on in, in fields outside of my own. So I, I thought a little bit about college administration as maybe being something I might want to do to plan programs for biology at a small college or something, and I explored that. I went up to the dean of Gordon College and asked them about that, and they said, well, you'd probably need to put in at least a decade of teaching before we'd consider you for an administrative position like that. And I thought, well, what if I don't end up liking the teaching for that long? I, I knew that I also was somebody who liked a lot of change, constant change, and I, I was worried that maybe in the college environment I would like the teaching for the first few years and then maybe feel like it was kind of repetitive. And that might not have been the case, but that was my concern. So um, at one point, 
um, somebody that is the director, he was the director of the National Institute of Neurologi Neurological Disorders and Stroke, Zach Hall, came to Brandeis to give a talk about his foray into science policy from UCSF. Um, at the time, I think it, he was probably in his fourth year of being at NINDS, and he just talked about how amazing it was. He was a you know, top-notch researcher um, and had been invited to become the director of this government um, research institution. And so he, he came and took over NINDS, and he said it just really opened his eyes to the importance of public policy and um, for scientists to be involved in helping developing the direction of science for the future. And he apparently really enjoyed it. I think the only reason he stepped down at the end was his wife was a musician, and I think she couldn't find a position or something, um, to a, a long-lasting position in the Washington area, so they went back to UCSF. But um, he really inspired me. I had lunch with him afterwards and asked him all about science policy. And he was, of course, talking from being a very senior-level person that got a senior-level government job. And he actually encouraged me to go to NIH and talk to people if I wanted to explore that opportunity. But at the time, I was too timid. And you know, the idea of going up to people I didn't even know, flying up to Washington and meeting people I've never met before, and I thought, well, they'll just think I'm ridiculous just coming up to meet them. And so I didn't actually follow that advice. But um, shortly after that, um, somebody came in who was interviewing for a postdoctoral fellowship in our lab. And she had been doing the AAAS um, Congressional Science Policy Fellowship on Capitol Hill, working for um, Louise Slaughter on the genetic privacy bill, which finally just got passed now, some several years later, like eight years later. Um, but she told me about her work, and then it all really clicked. I said, this is the kind of stuff I think I would really like to do to work kind of at the interface of where people's um, beliefs and interests and politics come together with science and, and it's um, be involved in communicating the importance of science to the public and to be able to communicate the importance of science to policymakers that are funding science. So um, after that, I immediately looked around at my university, and they actually did have public policy courses in the university. And by regulation, I was allowed to take one class per semester for free. So I started signing up for policy classes. It didn't make my mentor very happy. Um, she thought that was a complete waste of time, <laughs> which I, I mean, I understand. It was a weird thing to do. Nobody else was doing this kind of thing. I signed up for a course in genetics law and social policy with um, Dr. Phil Riley in Boston, and he was a tremendous mentor. Um, it was a course for genetic counseling people, and it was very weird that I came over from the PhD program to take this class, but he was terrific and really gave me a little bit of the mentorship I needed in, in the field that I was interested in. And I took environmental policy and a couple of other classes until I finished. and. At that point, I knew I wanted to go to Washington, and it was, it was finally my turn to decide where we moved. My husband, um, who studied particle physics and did his PhD at Harvard, um, did a postdoc at Brandeis, and I kind of waited for him there, and then we got to move to Washington, D.C. And um, I knew about the AAAS fellowship, and I was very interested in that. But the first opportunity that came to me was the National Academy of Sciences, um, Science and Technology Policy Fellowship. So I applied for that and got that and moved to Washington and I started my policy fellowship. My 
topic was agricultural biotechnology policy, so I worked on things like um, issues of biocontainment of genetically modified crops or um, development of new traits in, in plants and, and what this would mean for um, kind of environmental concerns about GMOs, um, safety of GMOs. So I had about five different projects I worked on during my fellowship and I completely loved it. I did a lot of writing, um, helped develop proposals for different National Academies studies. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but they basically the National Academies convene expert panels of scientists to consider important science policy issues and then they usually issue a set of recommendations that may inform a government agency or the Congress. So um, it was really fun working with the, the committees also. I, I met a lot of interesting people that way. One of the people that I sat next to and worked with on a committee ended up becoming the commissioner of the FDA for a while and I found out he went to my church too. Actually good idea for if we do a meeting in Washington. He might be a good speaker. Um, but anyway, so I did my fellowship and then I got to stay on at the academies for about a year as a contractor and I worked on the big human cloning project that they had and it was really very exciting because they were considering legislation about human cloning at the time and so we were under tight time pressure to actually get a report out in under a year which is kind of fast for the academies and the most exciting part of that was going up to Capitol Hill and hearing a hearing where Rael of the Raelians, I don't know if you know who he is, but he's a cult leader from Canada and they believe that the aliens came and are cloning people or something and so he was wearing his funny white gown and silver stuff and he walked into the congressional hearing with all the you know congressmen sitting there and he testified about <laughs> his cloning research. It, it, was, it was quite a circus and very exciting to be a part of. Um, and while I was at the academy working on the human cloning project, they, they were very supportive of me looking for my next position and um, helped me network to meet some people at NIH. And with my background in neurobiology, I ended up accepting a position to be a program manager at the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. And there I worked with the Parkinson's Disease Research Program. And even though I was really looking for more of a policy type position and this was a program management position where I was actually advising people who were applying for grants and helping them through the process of getting grants, um, it was really valuable because it's a, definitely the bread and butter of NIH and I think in any agency it's always useful to truly understand the nuts and bolts of how they do things and what they do. So I did that for a year and a half and then um, I guess while I was at the Academy, 9-11 happened, and so by the time a year and a half had passed, um, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases had gotten a lot of money for doing biodefense research, and they were just a short way into that, but they were starting to hire people for both program management and policy, so that was my opportunity, and I went to that institute, and so that's where I am now. And in this position, they've actually, it's kind of a unique office in a unique position. They do communications, policy, and budget operations all in one office. In this, and it's actually a division office. So the institute has its own offices and then this institute is so big that it has three divisions that are very large. Um, our division for biodefense, we have a 2.7 billion dollar budget. So 
it's a pretty big, it was a, um, it's a pretty large division. It's bigger than the institute I came from before that. Um, but they have all these functions in one office. And since I had program management experience, they put me in charge of training grants and diversity or minority grants and conference grants as one little piece of what I do. And then I do a lot of policy stuff, which involves a lot of um, writing strategic plans, reviewing other people's strategic plans that may be coming from other departments in the government. Um, I'm involved in evaluation of research programs. For example, our um, biodefense, biocontainment facilities construction program needed to be evaluated a couple of years ago under a, a government requirement. So I led that effort to provide the Office of Management and Budget with um, evaluation materials on that program. So I learned everything I ever wanted to know about how to build a biocontainment facility. Um, in my job, a lot of different topics come up. It's a very changing atmosphere. So, you know, SARS hits. That SARS hit before I got to NIAID, but they were still working a lot on SARS at the time. And then avian influenza got big. And then in the last year, um, with the Bill Gates Foundation declaring a new um, effort towards eradication of malaria. Malaria has been big, and so in a policy type of atmosphere, you're, you're always, in some ways, you're, you're kind of responding to outside um, interests and pressures. But in other ways, I do a lot of planning also for the future, and so those are things that you do proactively. So I, I once was at a talk, and some guy said, well, you're just reactive over there. We're proactive. And he's like, well, we have some, some projects that are long range that would be proactive and others that are reactive. But I really like the fact that I'm always working on a different topic. I've learned a lot of different areas of science. I, I was never a microbiologist or an infectious disease person. But by now, I've had a lot of opportunities to learn about all kinds of different organisms and infectious diseases. I was more of a, I, I probably knew more about genetic diseases before I came to this institute. So that has uh, suited me well, plus doing a lot of these different functions. So I write a lot. I go to meetings a lot to try to negotiate things, talk with people, come to consensus um, about different issues. Um, I don't know. So I, I, and I guess I've described some of the projects I work on. Um, so I think in, in, if you were considering a policy job, you'd have to be someone that was very flexible and kind of liked a fast-paced atmosphere that was changing all the time. And um, you, know, you wouldn't have a lot of time to just sit and methodically work on one project because you'd be disturbed by the next emergency. And you know, uh, Dick Cheney has called and said that he wants a report on this disease, and we need five slides about this. And, <laughs> You know, that might come to my office and we have to respond to that, or congressional requests, um, requests from the public, just trying to find out what's going on in our institute, and plus preparing our institute director for test testimony, or um, if professional societies want to meet with him, we often give him preparation for those particular issues, or if something really controversial comes up, um, just preparing for the media and, and what's going to be happening with that. I also do some writing of materials for the public, like um, preparation of uh, lay reading documents for the web or um, in written materials to explain different diseases. So um, 
In terms of how I balance work and family with other life activities, um, it's actually, it works out pretty well in the government. I, I basically work nine to five right now. I'm at the top level that I can be at without being a supervisor, so I haven't reached that next level. I think the expectations would, will rise once I become the director of an office or something. At the moment, I'm still, I'm a high level worker bee. So I, I'm not in charge of other people. But once you are, then you know the expectations may rise to work a little bit more than just a nine to five schedule. But that's worked really well. I've, in the past four years, I've had two children. And so that makes it easy. I have an easy commute. Um, I'm involved in my church. I sing in the choir. My husband and I met singing in the choir at Wheaton College. And we've continued to sing as we've gone along. Um, they're very flexible in my workplace. I actually work in an office of all women, which is kind of unusual, and they're very flexible about if, if they, they call and say I have to take one of my kids home, then I can you know, get on my laptop at home and work from home once I put my kid to bed. And they're, they're great that way, really, um, very flexible. And in terms of integrating my faith with my career, I think the verse for this meeting has been really appropriate. Um, thinking about doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly. Um, I think a lot of what attracts me to the, the government is that mission of trying to help maybe those who are in need. I think the government often has a role in trying to step into places where other, the needs are not being met by others, um, to work on orphan diseases, um, the ne neglected tropical diseases, for example, um, to try to resolve some inequities, some of the work that I do to try to help um, minority groups or um, women or other underrepresented groups in science. I guess I see part of that as, as kind of the justice mission. Um, and in terms of walking humbly, trying always to take into account that as a scientist, you don't know everything. And you know, there may be a particular paradigm that's very popular at the time, but that can change at a moment's notice. Something like 9-11 can happen and everything can change. And so to, you know, um, as a person, as an individual, to be dependent on God and to recognize that, you know, you only know a little bit of, of the whole picture. So anyway, that's the end of my talk. And it is, I, I'd like to thank all of the speakers for sharing. And now we can have time for questions. So, <laughs> anyone questions? Anyone forward? And we can like sit in a circle and stuff. Yeah. 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 And we should pass. Yeah. We should pass this around to you guys too. I actually do have a question for you specifically. You mentioned that when you were first um, working on tenure, you were at two meetings a month, and it sounds like extremely busy. So, how did things work with your family during that time when you weren't able to shove work into this nice little no evenings or weekends box? I guess that I, I just benefited from what they talked about in the gender issues one, and that is that my wife stayed home and took care of our child. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that was really it, because I was going a lot, a whole lot. And, 
and you know, I would say those first. I mean, those. There, there, I mean, I had specific goals that I met was get a get a grant as quickly as I could and publish whatever number of publications the university I was at deemed necessary for me to get tenure as fast as I possibly could. Mm -hmm. And so I got a year early. But yeah, I would say that at least a good two years of that was on the road and, you know, it was a lot of not at home time. Now, granted, my daughter was an infant at the yeah. time. So I, you know, I knew that as we had more children and they got older, that was going to be less and less likely to occur. So it was difficult. I know I, I have, I had a very good friend um, that, uh, she actually had a child, like, you know, during her, you know, trying to get to tenure. And it was difficult for her. And I know that uh, at least one uh, female faculty member in the department really resented her for doing that. And really, uh, there was some backlash mm -hmm. because she would bring her child to work with her because she was, she was nursing. And um, it, it was really kind of ugly to see. I mean, because this was, this was a tenured female in the department who had chosen never to have children so that she could develop her career you know and she really took it out on her um, but uh, but yeah I mean I, I, I think that where I am now we have a really good uh, assistant who just got promoted associate and she waited till the year she went up and so it was all over with that's when she had I mean you can almost timed it out <laughs> so it, it's I know for me I benefited from my wife staying home uh, it, I have seen it be more difficult for women uh, and not just from men taking, uh, you know, kind of taking it out on them because they took time off and stuff. I've actually seen other female faculty that had chosen making other choices really resent it. So, so it it sounds to me, and this is the impression that I've gotten from my advisor, also at a primarily research institution. It sounds like in those sorts of positions, you just have to kind of play the game for the first five years or whatever it takes you to get tenure, and then you can start to do more of the sort of things that you really want to do and you have more time for your family and other things? I think you have more time for your family later. I think I was always doing the things I wanted to do. I think one of the things I always tell uh, student, young students is that uh, a lot of students that come to graduate school, they, they still have this kind of idea that, that being a scientist is like being like Dr. Frankenstein, like you do all kind of stuff. You got a lab at your house, you do everything. Be very focused, very programmatic in what you do. Uh, and and just kind of you know I always tell my students that we just kind of plod along, you know one study is only just a step away from the other, um, and it you know and, and keeping that real focus I, I've seen a lot of faculty they try to get going with a lot of collaborations and stuff and they they kind of I actually saw someone not get tenure one time because they were told by the committee you've got you know five six publications here over the last couple of years but they're all in different things. And so what do you do? So, you know, and so I, I think I was always very focused on what I, what I was going to do. But, and I, but I did have to say, I said to myself and to my wife, it'll get better on the backside. So now I never had a lot of teaching responsibilities. So um, I, I don't know what it would be like if I, you know, what that's like. If you, is it get better? 